This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. So there are a lot of fights I want to cover for UFC 244, Masvidal versus Diaz. And I also want to get into the Alvarez versus Kovalev fight. And in watching hours of fights last night, I felt several themes running through all of them, which is fighter safety, the incentive structure, why MMA isn't a sweet science yet, and what does it mean to be the baddest motherfucker in the fight game. During Shane Burgos' domination over Maquan Amir Khani, Coach Faraz Zahabi told the damaged and gassing Amir Khani to go through hell the next round. Then he sent his pupil to go out there and be violently KO'd and humiliated in front of millions of people. MMA has the culture that it does, not just because of who's attracted to MMA, but because of the incentive structure. In another sport, in another incentive structure, coaches like Zahabi might coach differently. But in MMA, and in particular, the UFC, you tell your fighter, who is only going to take more permanent damage if they go out there, to go through hell, to go out on your shield. This is common in MMA, but for a respected coach like Faraz Zahabi to adopt the same bro mindset, it stuck out. However, he's just as much a product of the system as anyone else. Your job as a coach is to protect your fighter and their future especially for their life after fighting. Your job is to send them home to their family. Your job is to protect their name and reputation and take it on your shoulders because you're not the one going out there and you don't need endorsement deals or fans so you can take it. And if they fire you for it, so be it. Your job isn't worth their life because you did your job. You got them home. Throw in the towel rather than watch them take five more punches while they're already lifeless. Only for the referee to tackle your pupil's opponent and do your job for you. Or when you force your fighter to tap to strikes, rather than doing what you're supposed to do, which is to protect your fighter. But then there is the bonus structure. The win bonus. The performance bonus. This doesn't just incentivize the fighter's behavior. It also incentivizes the coach's as they aren't paid a flat sum, but a percentage of the total, which includes the bonuses. The bonuses make the fighters fight the wrong way. To fight in a way that doesn't highlight their strengths and exposes them to more damage. It makes coaches do the wrong things. The coach has all the duties of the referee to protect their fighter and also give them sound advice to win and protect themselves. Now imagine if the referee was also paid extra if the fight was a performance of the night. How stupid would that be? Yet they do that for coaches. So why then even give them a towel to throw in? Even the progression of skills in MMA is delayed because of the incentive structure. It's like paying basketball players 10k per slam dunk. If that were the case, 
we would not have modern basketball with three-pointers and well-rounded players who can run up and down the court. Even the BMF belt is an incentive to throw away defense and only use offense. So score 160 points, but allow 158. But those points aren't just points on a scoreboard. They're damage to a fighter. Throw loss of offense and take loss of damage, essentially. And fuck walking away from the sport in one piece. The ideal fight has the winner being dropped twice, but the loser being dropped three times, then finished. And as far as strategy, there are secondary strategies like go for a takedown or look for the clinch or mix it up. But the primary strategy is to bite down on your mouthpiece and throw. And if that's where we're stuck at, how can MMA ever become a sweet science when there's so many limitations on how you're supposed to fight and how you're supposed to win? It's supposed to be an open market of choices, but like all free markets, it's never truly free. It gets monopolized by whoever has the most money. The UFC has all the money, and they dictate not only the rules, but how people should dress, fight, and speak. I watched every fight of UFC 244, starting with the early prelims. The night started with Hakeem Dawadu defeating Julio Arce. And like the majority of prelim fights, unless you're a specialist in one area, it ends up being a volume game. Not who can hit without getting hit, but more like a game of who can hit the other person more than they themselves have been hit. In sports without incentive bonuses, the emphasis is on defense. In MMA, it's about more offense than your opponent, and that's what Dawadu did. Then Lyman Good knocked out a tough chance encounter. Toughness isn't necessarily a skill, and sometimes, without the toughness, some fighters would be awful. But tough fighters have the performances the UFC likes, because there is damage. The UFC doesn't care who's the one taking the damage. So long as there is damage, and you can make it last. That somehow equals excitement. Rencounter is tough, and took a lot of damage, and in the end, ate a high kick followed by a right hand by Good that crushed him. How does that work? You block the kick with both forearms. How do you make sure the kick doesn't go through your forearms and hit your face? You have to meet the kick with your arms as it's coming to slow the kick down so it doesn't hit your face. That's what Rencounter did. But that also puts your hands out of position, which allows room for a right to come down the center. Especially since this was an open stance, southpaw versus orthodox matchup, the power side becomes that much more devastating. This also reminded me how well a punch and a kick in either order is so effective when it comes from the same side. Because the way you block one is not the same way you block the other. And usually combos come left and right. But sending two different kinds of same-side attacks is still rare in MMA. Because the UFC incentivizes slam dunks, not complex strategies. Then Caitlin Chukagian defeated Jennifer Maya. Chukagian showed how just some effective feints puts you head and above the rest in a developing division like the women's flyweight division. Another observation. Chukagian tends to stick her chin out not while throwing punches or because of a deficiency in her form, but as a matter of posture. Fighters are like the rest of us. We can have bad posture, and so can they. Many people develop forward head posture. So do fighters, because they are also people. It's not a habit, so it's not a habit you can fix. 
It's not something a coach can fix. It might be permanent for some, or it might take a long time with a physical therapist to correct. It's a structural problem, not a technical one. And it will probably haunt her, like it did Vanderlei Silva, like it does Derek Brunson, and like it does for many other fighters. There is so much more to fighting that people don't consider, but why should they? You don't get paid to consider everything. You as a coach don't even get paid to throw in the towel. You get paid not to throw in the towel. In the next fight, Jair Zeno Rosenstrike knocked out Andre Arlovsky. Arlovsky has been finished 12 times as a pro. 11 of those were by knockout. And he's been dropped probably twice as often as that. Arlovsky never had a great chin. But now he's slow. He's lost most of his power. He can't jab. His knees are bad. His back doesn't move. His body just doesn't move. He used to have finesse and now he doesn't even have that, which either forces him to run right at his opponent with punches or run straight back. And yet somehow he still manages to win on occasion. I don't know if he'll retire, even if the UFC releases him. And with a lack of any fighter safety nets, you worry about fighters like Arlovsky, who fought a style that wasn't well suited for him. Much like Michael Bisbing, he was a fighter who threw rocks from a glass house, who identified as a striker while not having the durability required to be a striker. It did mean championship belts for both fighters, but it also meant they took more damage than the people they beat. Then Edmund Shabazian knocked out veteran Brad Tavares, who's not even that old. Shabazian was another fighter who took advantage of the same side kick and punch attack, this time from the lead side rather than the rear. He jabbed, which Tavares parried, and with the same idea as good, that left Tavares out of position for the high kick. Lead side high kicks are grossly underutilized because it's not a home run, it's not a slam dunk, but it's your fucking leg. Even a light kick to the face with your leg is just as powerful as your power punch. And here's what I mean by incentives stagnating progress in MMA. If this had just landed, and not knocked out Tavares, then no one would notice. Coaches will only begin studying moves when it leads to a knockout because that's a move that pays them more. I'm not saying they do this consciously. Incentive bias is unconscious. Knockouts just put a spotlight on moves. And this delays new moves from being adopted and why defense is so slow to improve because you don't get any money for best defense of the night. The UFC does not want the stylistic equivalent of Pernell Whitaker, Floyd Mayweather, or Winky Wright, and Dana White will gladly tell you so as he cusses you out. Then Shane Burgos defeated Maquan Amirkani. Faraz Zahabi is respected because of two fighters, George St. Pierre and Rory McDonald. One thing he's good at is getting his fighters to utilize the jab. Amirkani had that, and that's about all he had as he gassed himself out in the first and got beat up for the next two until he got finished. Burgos is from Team Tiger Shulman, and one thing interesting about that team is they get all their fighters to pressure, throw long combinations, counter-strike, and throw shots to the body. And just with being able to do that across the board with their fighters and being consistent with that, a karate school that was once ridiculed as a McDojo trying to train MMA fighters has gotten more fighters into the UFC than all the so-called legitimate MMA schools that used to put them on blast online. 
then maybe a McDojo with some core principles to striking is better than an MMA school with no thesis about fighting. I mean, is just training everything and seeing what happens that good of a system? Then it was Corey Anderson versus Johnny Walker, with the grappler knocking out the highly touted striker. Now, why was Walker so highly touted when before this fight, we only saw him for less than three minutes in the octagon because of the bias incentives create? Since he had so many knockouts, and knockouts mean bonuses and highlight reels, we assumed that meant he was that good. That a slam dunk makes you better than a player who can shoot three-pointers all day. That's backwards, but MMA is a sport where fighters are trying to move upstream in a backward system. So people were shocked because they were just as brainwashed by the UFC machine as the fighters and coaches. They told you what the signs of a good fighter was. To use the basketball analogy again, in today's basketball, if all you can do is dunk, then you suck. Now this doesn't mean Walker is a bad fighter. We just haven't seen enough of him. He's shown us great offense, but in the way of defense, we haven't seen much, and what we have seen is not so great. And Anderson's team, who studied all of Walker's previous fights, contended that there were massive holes in Walker's defense that he hasn't fixed because he was being rewarded not to fix them. In the fight, right off the bat, Walker faints. A lot. Which makes his attack sudden and hard to see. Anderson circled Walker to his right, to his power hand. And circling also nullifies Walker from running right at you with an attack. So just from that, Walker can't attack and Walker is walking to Anderson's right hand. Then Anderson shot in on Walker. Walker fought it off, but the shot made Walker drop his hands to defend the takedown. Then Anderson jabbed Walker to keep Walker defending. As part of his feints and also as part of his defense, Walker slips to his left. Normally, you choose which side to slip after you see what your opponent throws. But in MMA, you do it backwards. You slip before the opponent throws a strike to show them where your head is going to be. So instead of seeing where someone is looking, then hiding something valuable somewhere else, you show this person where you're going to hide your valuable thing. So Anderson kept the jab pumping to make sure Walker's head was in place. Circling stopped the attacks. The shot dropped his hands. The jab put Walker's head in sight. Then Anderson threw the right and rocked Walker. Then Anderson chased him down with strikes, and the rest of it was academic. Anderson finished Walker in round one. Having a slam dunk winner on your team doesn't make you win titles, and scouts could care less about a player winning a slam dunk contest. Then Kevin Lee knocked out Gregor Gillespie. What was interesting was, this was all going down while Trump was entering the arena. So Lee heard the reaction during the fight. On Instagram, he posted a photo of the knockout and dedicated it to Bernie Sanders. To say, I see you Trump, but Bernie got something for you. Lee followed the trend Shabazian had started with a lead side head kick. But rather than a same side attack, Lee threw the right, caught Gillespie, and Gillespie tried to back away out of range from more strikes. And rather than chasing him, Lee threw the lead side high kick, which had the most amount of range out of his attacks, and caught Gillespie when he thought he was out of danger. Fighters have been able to run backwards out of attacks for so long, they now believe it's safe. And this is where the lead side kick can expose that defensive flaw. Fighters also drop their hands or swing it out in a circle, or extend it out 
as they back away, almost as a mental reset. That leaves them vulnerable to a lead side kick. There are a lot of strange physical behaviors you see in MMA that you won't see in any other combat sport because they do it when they think they're far enough away to avoid getting hit. And now that I'm far away, let me do something to reset my mind. But for you to reset, that means you, for a moment, can take your focus away from the fight. In MMA, fighters have been able to do that, until another fighter won't let you. But once you're locked inside the cage, you're always in a fight. You're always in danger. You always need to concentrate. With better footwork and better long-range attacks, you'll see mental reset behaviors like circling both arms like you're doing jumping jacks as you shuffle away completely disappear. Imagine doing that in a boxing match, or a kickboxing match, or a wrestling match, or a judo match. You'd get fucked up. But because of the need for KOs, the majority of the action happens when both fighters agree to rush forward. And if not, you're safe. Most of the time. Then it was Derek Lewis versus Blagoy Ivanov. Lewis won via split decision. Lewis got hit more, but he hit Ivanov harder. And that's basically it. Ivanov landed more takedowns, had a near submission, and also hit him more. But Lewis was closer to the KOs. So there you go. Lewis wins even though he probably took more damage. But when Lewis strikes, it makes you go damn. And that affects judging. Then it was Steven Wonderboy Thompson versus Vicente Luque. Wonderboy developed his striking outside of the UFC, which is why he's so much better at striking than most of the UFC fighters, and why he's such a challenge for them. Because he doesn't follow the UFC incentive model. It's not his karate that's confusing. It's that he won't just bite down on his mouthpiece and throw. And that he thinks offense while simultaneously thinking defense, not just offense and harder offense. This also gives Wonderboy the freedom to adapt. He's not tied down by having to finish in brutal fashion. If it happens, great. If it doesn't, so be it. In the first round, Luke did good work with leg kicks. Now why leg kicks haven't been as effective as people would think based on Wonderboy's long side stance is because Wonderboy can fight well from both sides, and he spends almost an equal amount of time in both stances, which distributes the attack onto both legs. And also, since he is so sideways and low, the kicks hit the meat, but don't buckle his legs the same way they would if he were in a more upright and straightforward stance. Luke did his best work when he was pressuring Wonderboy onto the fence, limiting his mobility, then hurting him from there. Luke studied the Wonder Boy outside pot shotting game, and he had an answer for that, which was pressure and get him onto the cage. The thing is, though, Luke is so offense minded, he doesn't seem to really think about defense. And even if he did, his defense is just double forearms in front of his face, which is simple, which saves all his thinking again to just offense. Luke, as far as footwork goes, only goes forward and back in a straight line. So Wonderboy adapted because his outside kicking game was getting him crowded along the fence. So he began to throw punches. Much more punches than all of his other fights. Just straight punches that split through the guard of Luke. A lot of MMA fighters throw looping punches, 
which Liu Kei can shuck off with his double forearm guard. But straight line punches go right between the cracks of his guard. And since he's only coming forward and his forearms are basically covering his eyes, Liu Kei was walking onto side kicks. If the kicks were coming around the side like a round kick or a looping punch or a hook, Liu Kei could see them coming and block. But anything that comes straight on, Liu Kei was blind to. Thompson had another adaptation, not letting Liu Kei pressure him onto the fence by standing his ground and throwing punches, or to intercept Liu Kei's forward movement with punches, or to just come forward on Liu Kei and throw long punches. Sidekicks and straight punches were on repeat. When Liu Kei tried to crash through Thompson's offense, Thompson backstepped into orthodox stance and threw a right hand, which stunned Liu Kei. Lots of fighters can now stand switch while moving forward or in place, but Wonderboy is one of the few fighters who can do it going backward. After earning Luke's respect with that punch, Luke became much more static. Once that happened, it was easier for Thompson to pressure Luke onto the fence with his punches. Then, when Luke covered up, it allowed Thompson to use his hook kicks and wheel kicks to hit Luke around his guard. At this point, the only time Luke was throwing punches was while he was being hit, outside of a few naked leg kicks, which Thompson was now checking. The jab for Luke after round one went completely missing. Luke was loading up on power shots, waiting for his moment, and getting beat up while he was waiting. Like in a video game, the moment to attack is when your opponent is charging up their power move, at which point they're a sitting duck. In round three, Thompson hurts Luke again with an intercepting left straight from southpaw stance. Thompson is not a hard power puncher, but he can increase his power by coming forward into his strike while his opponent is also coming forward. Then it's their force meeting your force, except it's not two fists colliding, but rather their face onto your fist. It doubles the power of the punch. Luke walked through punches from Mike Perry but this is why Thompson was able to drop Luke several times. The commentator spoke about Wonderboy's chin and that him having a weak chin might be just a myth or his chin magically just healed. And it's neither. Thompson probably does have a weak chin, but when he sees a punch coming, he's good at rolling with the punch. So his chin is good when he sees the punch coming. His chin is not so good when he doesn't. So in this fight, Thompson did get hit, but he rolled with all the shots, so it didn't really hurt him. It appears like he took a good shot, but he didn't really get hit that hard. A good chin is being able to withstand a punch you can't see. Wonderboy can't do that. But he's so savvy, he can see most of the strikes coming at him. Even if it's right at the last second, he can still do something to cushion the blow. His vision is why he can just pull his head back away from a punch which is usually a big no-no. Wonderboy is so defensive when he rolls away from a punch, he nearly spins his whole body away. Gigantic movements like that in boxing would get you murdered. But Wonderboy can kick, and he's ambidextrous, so he allows himself to turn or spin onto a new stance. So for instance, starting from southpaw, he might spin to his right and switch his stance into orthodox or he might spin and step back into his new stance. Or he might not take a new stance at all and just turn and expose his side or his back. He spins and turns and rolls hard 
because he's that cautious about his chin. But from there, Wonder Boy has developed his side kicks, back kicks, hook kicks, and wheel kicks. Even his angular shifting overhands. Why you wouldn't teach everyone else to do this is because most people can't fight equally well from both sides. But Wonder Boy can. This gives Wonder Boy more slack to use bigger defensive movements. If Wonder Boy used classical defense and didn't exaggerate his movements so much, he wouldn't be able to use as many kicks as he does. And that's the point of karate and taekwondo. Your defensive answer to most things is kicking. You can't punch from all angles, but in many traditional arts, they have a kick for every position. Kicks are used as offense and defense. There is less emphasis on footwork and defense and much more on kicking. Most of the time, we see this strategy fail in the cage. See Michelle Watterson against Joanna Janjacek. But in Wonder Boy, we see it work. When Wonder Boy's gone, we might not see this style again for a while or ever again. Because it's not a style that MMA fighters can adopt unless they not only can kick as well as he can, but are also ambidextrous. Even Lyoto Machida didn't kick this much. Though I do think that more front kicks from Thompson would make his game that much more frightening. I mean, he's a karate kid who doesn't do any crane kicks or front kicks. But I guess even Wonder Boy can't fit every kick into his game, even if it is the kick most synonymous with karate. Then it was Kelvin Gastelum versus Darren Till, one of those rare Southpaw versus Southpaw matchups. Southpaws tend to faint more and tend to counterstrike. This is true for both KG and Till. Usually for Southpaws, their best punch is the two or the left straight. But since they were in a closed stance, Till was landing the one-two over and over again. KG normally in his fights has to worry about his opponent's right hand. But against Till, the simple one-two was messing him up. Then off the one-two, Till would collar tie or stiff arm to push off of KG and angle off. Recently, we saw Damian Maya do this against Ben Askren. Being the longer version of KG, Till uses reach and hit KG while staying out of range, especially with kicks. He was kicking KG at will from the outside. When they got too close, Till just clinched. Much like the concept you use against the jiu-jitsu guard, be all the way in or all the way out, not somewhere in between. That's what Till did, stay all the way out or be in clinch. And being the taller man, he didn't have to worry about too much from the clinch. KG couldn't really reach Till's face with knees or elbows. Also, Till did something really simple to nullify KG's game. And I was actually surprised how something so simple was all it took to neutralize KG, which was to constantly circle. Till, like Wonder Boy, developed his striking outside of the cage, so he doesn't play by the UFC hierarchy of moves. KG relies on a lot of feints and traps. But by simply circling, KG had to constantly reset, which removed all the traps. Also, KG is a fighter who has a very obvious tell when he's frustrated. It's what I talked about before. He does these big motions with his hands and he stomps his feet. This is to reset his mind because he's frustrated. And by the third round, KG kept doing it, which Till knew meant he had complete control.
This is another reason why you shouldn't do physical mental resets. Don't give any tells to your opponent. When KG did go for a takedown, he has a habit of keeping his hips high. To make a comparison again to the Maya versus Askren fight, Askren had the same issue against Maya, which got him lifted. With high hips, Till lifted KG and got back to his feet. But unlike Askren, KG seems to always have this problem in his takedowns, which is why he can't keep his takedowns. Another simple and effective move was when Till caught KG's kicks. Rather than feeling like he had to do something with it right away, he took his time with it and held on to either punch KG or to just run him down while holding the leg to get the takedown. These are things you'll see in Muay Thai, but in the UFC, you don't get a bonus for running down an opponent after catching their kick. So everyone tries to do what Anderson Silva only did once in the octagon, which is to knock out his opponent immediately after catching the kick. Everyone tries it and it never works. But taking your time and walking your opponent to the cage or running your opponent down is simple and it works. This would be equivalent to passes and blocks in basketball. Doesn't necessarily score, but definitely creates the right elements to win. Till in the end won his sort of fight, albeit in a split decision, which is a low volume defensive fight. He hit KG to the head a lot while almost nullifying KG's ability to hit him in the head. Then we had the main event, Jorge Masvidal versus Nate Diaz. Who is the baddest motherfucker in the game? Well, I can first tell you who won this fight. It was Jorge Masvidal. I can tell you who was winning every round of this fight before the end. It was Jorge Masvidal. I can tell you what caused the finish. A bunch of elbows from Jorge Masvidal. Why do fighters throw elbows? To cause a doctor stoppage. How did Masvidal win? By doctor stoppage. It makes no sense for him to say, that's not how he wanted to win. Then why did you throw the elbow? And it makes no sense for MMA fans who want every conceivable version of the elbow to be allowed in MMA to then be upset by a cut stoppage. Or Joe Rogan, who talks about wanting no gloves, allowing every elbow, allowing the headbutt, allowing soccer kicks, yet still gets weirded out over cut stoppages. What's weird are these reactions. Look, if cut stoppages suck that much, then why aren't we asking for a ban on elbows? Why do we instead ask for more types of moves to be brought back? Because we don't know what we want. We just wish Nate Diaz would die in the octagon and go out on his shield. When the cut happened in round one, everyone gasped, afraid it might get stopped. Then we were surprised they didn't stop it in round two. Then we forgot about our worries from round one. It's not just about how much blood there is or how wide the cut is. It's also about depth. You can die from serious lacerations on your face, especially when there's sweat and Kevin Lee's staph infection all over the cage. Oh yeah, you all forgot about that staph and everyone else's blood in that cage, right? It's an infectious nightmare. And a deep cut can also cut nerves or create other permanent damage or disfigurement. Remember, life after the cage, right? Now on paper, Masvidal was better than Diaz probably in every facet of the game. 
including boxing. He was supposed to win. Even people betting on Diaz knew this, and they were all banking on Diaz winning on attrition. Masvidal has coasted in later rounds of fights, but he's never looked gassed, and he's only been finished with strikes once. That's once in 47 professional fights before the Diaz fight. And Damian Maya said he has the best submission defense in the UFC. So I was paying a lot of attention to Nate Diaz because Masvidal was supposed to win. There's no point in doing a great analysis of Masvidal because there were a variety of ways he could have won. Because ultimately, he has such a speed and fast twitch advantage. So there was no brilliant strategy to analyze here. To beat Diaz, he just needed to be himself. And people who are going to analyze all the things Masvidal did are reading way too much into this fight. So, what did Nate Diaz do? He pressured. Diaz at his best is what we saw against Donald Cerrone and Michael Johnson. Staying on the outside, using long jabs and his reach, and circling. Now, kind of like how Fedor Emelianenko became just a right-handed puncher, Diaz dropped a lot of his finesse and tries to crowd his opponents and swarm them along the fence, looking to clinch. But part of why Diaz lasts is because he doesn't use a lot of strength. And so from clinch, since he's not using a lot of strength, Masvidal was able to create space and hurt him with an elbow. And then he dropped him with a kick to the head. From there, it was body shots on the ground. Masvidal was trying to destroy Diaz's attrition with body shots. And that's another thing we don't see enough of. Not just body shots while standing, but body shots on the ground. And when they got up, it was more strikes to the body from Masvidal. Diaz couldn't land that one too, but he did land a couple of right hooks to left straights. Diaz also used defensive front kicks to keep Masvidal at bay while he recovered. By the end of round one, Diaz had two big cuts. And then in round two, he got dropped again with a punch and then a body kick. Body shots were adding up. And then Masvidal took Diaz down, believing he could beat him everywhere. And he did beat him on the ground too, out scrambling him, staying on top, and landing strikes. Other moments of success was when Diaz was able to get Masvidal against the fence, and then he was able to land his one too. But whenever Masvidal felt the fence, he immediately got off the cage and angled off. In round three, Diaz began to look better, finally. Diaz began to roll with the punches and began to land more. But on paper, Masvidal should be better than Diaz everywhere, right? So he clinched Diaz, knowing he could muscle him from clinch. Diaz, afraid to eat more elbows, rolled for a leg lock and got stuck on bottom and then ate more ground and pound. Another bad sign was, whenever they did lock up, whether standing or on the ground, Diaz had a hard time escaping. He was being controlled. Diaz has won a lot of fights because of his ability to absorb strikes. And frankly, letting his opponents tire themselves out trying to finish him. But toughness is not a skill. To illustrate my point, how good would Diaz be if he weren't this tough and had to rely only on his technical skills? He wouldn't be so great. Trying to outlast your opponents isn't a long-term strategy. It's definitely not something you're going to be able to keep doing until you're 40. 
and it's already caught up to Diaz, like it did his older brother. Diaz's body was failing him. His skin was literally failing him. And before every fight, no matter how long of a break he takes, he always gets injured. Diaz was a complete mixed martial artist when strikers couldn't grapple and grapplers couldn't strike. Now he's in an era where fighters like Masvidal can not only strike and grapple, but also can do the in-between things like clinch, wrestle, defend, use their feet, angle, change speed, change rhythm, explode, think, and adapt. The doctor actually helped Nate Diaz save face. It's on the doctor, not on Diaz. He didn't really lose, people will say. He could have still won, people will say. That allows Diaz to maintain his confidence. It helps to maintain his value as a fighter. And it saved his face for future fights, figuratively and literally. More corners should be willing to do that. The doctor did his duty and stayed true to his oath, to do no harm and to protect his patients. To us, they're fighters. To the doctors, they're their patients. Then we had my favorite fight of the night. Saul Canelo Alvarez versus Sergei Kovalev. Having watched MMA all day, I couldn't help but compare boxing to MMA. The first thing that struck me about this fight was the distance. The punching range is further out than MMA punching range. It's from a range where people normally kick. Canelo barely at the end of range, taking jabs on his forearms. Too far to really hurt, and it's barely landing and the impact was being dispersed onto his gloves. If Canelo had his hands down, the punch wouldn't even reach his face. It was only in range to touch his gloves, but not penetrate further. Canelo also didn't walk through the jabs. He stopped whenever they were thrown to take them on the arms. Then he stepped in when Kovalev was retracting the punch, which made Kovalev slow to retract, which actually made it safer for Canelo to inch his way forward. And unlike Walker and many other MMA fighters, Canelo allows his opponent's punches to dictate how he blocks and slips so that he doesn't move his head onto a punch, which becomes important later. So Canelo allowed the jabs to touch his gloves, to gauge the jab, to gauge the range, to see how he should move his head, how he should block, angle, and counter. He's using defense to collect data rather than just defend because you already got hit three times flush. In MMA, it's often the offensive fighter who is the one who collects data, which they should be doing, but they shouldn't be the only one who's collecting data. Israel Adesanya is one MMA fighter who collects data defensively. Now that Canelo had gotten some data, and he's already set the precedence of being able to walk in during Kovalev's punch retractions, Canelo began to punch after Kovalev's jabs. However, all this defensive data collecting meant Kovalev was landing volume. But where Kovalev is landing volume without setting up any traps for later, Canelo was constantly dismantling Kovalev. The scorecards aren't the whole story. Canelo was landing power shots, and Kovalev was always in danger of being KO'd. Now, since the jab wasn't really hurting Canelo, Kovalev used the jab to probe for an opening for the right hand. But once he started using it just as a setup, Canelo, rather than punching after Kovalev's jab, 
he unleashed power shots as Kovalev was jabbing. Also, as the jabs were bouncing off his guard or shoulder, he was finding Kovalev's rhythm. If you keep throwing the jab out there too much, and you're only throwing the jab, it becomes a two-way street. You're reading them, but they're also reading you. Your opponent can find your rhythm and range without having to throw a single punch. And Canelo figured out Kovalev's rhythm. So an example of this can be, Kovalev throws two light jabs, then the third punch is a hard right. So Canelo punches during the second jab and takes Kovalev by surprise, also disrupting his rhythm. As Kovalev was using his jab to find Canelo, Canelo was finding him. The thing about boxing, the multiple rounds allows for less urgency or desperation, which means less mistakes, which means more tactical fights. But info is only good if you use it, and Canelo was using it after the first two rounds, and he never let a block go to waste. Every block had three purposes, block, set up a counter, and gather information. Another aspect of boxing that you'll commonly see are fighters angling their heads to keep it offline and set up a counter. So it's a bait. It looks like their head is right in line for you to punch, but it's actually an odd angle. So it's easy for them to avoid it and then hit you instead. They also angle and move their head offline to get a different look to see how they can break through your defenses. Because if you move your head, your opponent has to adjust. And that adjustment might be a window of opportunity. Kovalev's main offense was trying to split the guard of Canelo with jabs and rights. Like I said, he was landing volume, but it wasn't really hurting or scaring Canelo. And nothing significant was landing. And if you don't earn the respect of your opponent, that becomes a problem. Also, all the jabs Kovalev was throwing was making his arm tired. The jab was losing power. The jab was out there, but it had no power. And without a stiff jab, it became easier for Canelo to steer Kovalev into the ropes for power shots and body shots. If you're the shorter fighter, that's what you should be doing to taller, bigger fighters. You also have more surface area to hit. And also, body shots are closer to you. You don't have to duck down to get them. Another nice thing about body shots to a taller man, they have a similar angle to an uppercut. So you can easily do a switch up from body shot to an uppercut or a hook to the face, which also loads you up for an overhand. Overhand rights should be another principal weapon against taller fighters. Their tall heads are in the path of the arc of the overhand. Now taller fighters have an advantage at range, but when in close, they have to punch down, which makes them miss. And Kovalev kept missing from inside then there is only one range for Kovalev to do anything, which is from the outside. And he can't really land the right, and the left has no sting. The footwork in boxing is also something MMA might learn from. Instead of walking and chasing, Canelo takes small drag steps and side steps to cut off his opponent. And not only relying on his feet, Canelo also uses body movements to steer Kovalev, not only to feint, but if you lean your body a certain direction, from that lean, you can step and pivot. If you have power, your opponent has to respect that chest move and has to move accordingly. So not only with strikes or through chase, but through movements, you can steer an opponent. 
Wonderboy does this defensively, as I previously mentioned. But where Canelo uses it to step and pivot, Wonderboy steps and stance switches. He doesn't need to pivot because he could kick from odd angles. Now, would these small steps always work in MMA or these body movements? No, because you have other things to worry about. But what can absolutely work is cutting off the cage and the idea of stepping while maintaining stance and moving forward and to the side, forward and to the side, cutting off the cage. A ballsy counter Canelo often uses is a swivel head counter, which is to seemingly take a punch, but instead of slipping or rolling with it, he swivels his head almost completely backward to remove the force and then load up a counter. Wonderboy does something similar, but instead of just swiveling his head, he swivels his whole body and then takes a step or turns his back. Canelo hurt Kovalev with these counters because they're so unexpected. Rather than cowering from the punch, you agree to take it. And it's not taking any punch, you're taking their power right. Few fighters could pull this off. This is the magic of Canelo. He's also been constantly moving up in weight to be a four-weight class champion. And he's fighting someone possibly 30 pounds or more heavier than him and three to four inches taller. And he's still willing to take their punch to counter. Something else struck me about boxing versus MMA. In boxing, it's common to see someone shuffle to the left then switch to the right to get out of danger, or go to the right, then switch to the left. Circle one way, then as your opponent plants their feet to hit you, circle out the other way. But other than Eddie Alvarez, it's still not that common in MMA. Again, good circling is not valued. What team in MMA is known for its circling and defensive footwork? But more MMA teams will care if it meant a performance bonus. But all these defensive flaws leads to taking more damage than you need to. Now with the jab neutralized and Canelo having earned Kovalev's respect, Canelo was the one leading, forcing the taller Kovalev to slip punches. But this is where his size works against him as he's slipping onto Canelo's body shots. As I previously alluded to, slips won't work if your opponent knows where you're going. And this technical difference between Kovalev and Canelo and this trap that Canelo's been setting up will eventually lead to Kovalev's demise. I also have to wonder, since there was a delay in this fight because of the UFC, how much Kovalev cooled down after his initial warm-up? Did this tire him out even more? Did this cool down his shoulders and make them easier to fatigue? I don't know. So now Kovalev without a jab, without an ability to roll or slip or duck because of the Canelo body shots, it forced Kovalev to stand very upright, which makes him a sitting duck. So then what does Kovalev have? Defensive clinches. It saves himself from attack, but it doesn't score. Unless you use it like Darren Till, where you score first, and then you clinch defensively to prevent retaliation. And at this point, every time Kovalev through the right to keep Canelo away and make him respect his power, he got countered with the left hook. But even with nothing seemingly working, Kovalev stayed disciplined. No haymakers, no getting sloppy. In MMA, they would tell you to take risks, which literally means you should do something dangerous and take more damage than you already have. 
But opening yourself up to get hit doesn't necessarily mean you'll hit them. Putting yourself in a position to hit them is what will hit them. But in boxing, there is no incentive to do the bite down on your mouthpiece and close your eyes and throw punches strategy. I mean, you can do that, but it's not like it's going to get you paid more. And now in the fight, with Kovalev being forced to constantly clinch, Canelo frames off of Kovalev's neck with his left forearm. Now remember, to clinch a shorter fighter like Canelo, Kovalev has been bending over. So being already bent over, the forearm on the neck pushes him down even further, folding him over. And it's an angle that makes the taller fighter very weak. And what's also happening is, this is creating space. Then, in perfect position, with space, Canelo's left arm holding him in place and bending him over, Canelo drops the chopping right hand. Chopping means downward, like you're chopping someone's head off. It doesn't take much from that angle to really hurt an opponent. The chopping right is also what Kovalev has been missing all night and getting countered for. I mentioned that whenever Kovalev used a defensive body roll, he got hit with a left hook to the body. But since he was rocked by Canelo's right, he had no choice but to slip away from more power punches to the face, knowing he'll have to eat a body shot. So he had his hands ready to block to the body, bracing himself. But since Canelo was only going to the body to set up the head, this was the moment Canelo was waiting for, and he caught Kovalev flush with a left hook. The force was doubled because Kovalev was leaning into the punch, and unlike Canelo, he did not turn his head to reduce the impact. He just ate it. It was a punch he didn't see coming. Canelo, on the other hand, saw all the punches he was taking because he was collecting data. And remember, Kovalev was already rocked at this point. Now being rocked twice, fully dazed, Canelo was able to take his time and hit Kovalev with a right straight with everything behind it, not having to worry about defense or a counterpunch or what happens next. And then it was done. The referee immediately waved it off. You don't need to count. Just the way that combination landed, an experienced referee should know that's it. And the beauty of this fight is something rarely seen in MMA. A fighter taking away one tool at a time, three minutes at a time. In the UFC, the incentives make people think short term. But to systematically break someone down, you have to think long term and throughout the fight. This is why boxing is a sweet science. So then let me ask again. Who is the baddest motherfucker in the fight game? As far as beating giant monsters and taking the biggest challenges, this past Saturday, the baddest motherfucker was Canelo Alvarez. If being the baddest means fighting the company and speaking truth to power, it's Nate Diaz. If it's about doing the right thing in spite of the consequences, then it's the commission doctor who stopped the fight. Then what about Jorge Masvidal? Well, he's just game-bred. Like his nickname says, he's a true prize fighter. He fights for money and only for money. Since his days from the backyard circuits. And I think he'll do whatever the UFC asks him, so long as they pay him the right amount of money. But being a BMF champion doesn't mean he'll defend it against all comers or across promotions to truly see who is the baddest. No. It just means the UFC has a deal with ESPN 
where they have to guarantee a certain number of title fights. And so they came up with this belt as to not renege on that deal. That also means loss of interim titles, bullshit titles, and deserving fighters, exciting fighters who the fans love will never get to main event a pay-per-view and get their big payday unless they get a title shot, unless they can fight Conor McGregor. But even he has yet to have a non-title pay-per-view in the ESPN era. In boxing, two exciting fighters can have a pay-per-view without a title on the line. In the UFC, you can't. Why? Because it's not a free market. It's a monopoly. And they decide everything. They tell fighters how to look, talk, dress, and fight. And they tell us, the fans, what kinds of fights to like. With The Rock presenting the BMF belt and the UFC firmly in bed with Hollywood Studios, it really is more WWE than it is a true combat sport. Yet I still watch it and enjoy it. Why? Because in all that control, we still see glimpses of true freedom. A break from the Matrix. Where someone like Nate Diaz, who wouldn't be the good guy or the bad guy in a movie, but probably an extra, can become an icon. But that didn't happen because of the UFC. He became that icon because of the fans. So that's the show. Hope you enjoyed it as this was just my stream of consciousness immediately after watching the fights. But I really believe Paul and I are bringing something unique and of value to the world of podcasting that I don't know if anyone else is doing. Actually, I know no one else is doing it because I can't even tell you what it is that we're doing. But if you like what we're putting out or you love it, if it speaks to you, if it's what you've always wanted, then tell your friends, spread the word. If this is your first time listening, subscribe. If you haven't written us a five-star review somewhere, please do so as it helps others find the show. Share it on all your social networks. And don't forget to support us on Patreon. This is Indie Media. We have no budget. Actually, I personally run this show at a loss. So believe me, even a single dollar goes a long way in the production of this show. You can find us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. And you can also check the show description and find the link there as well. With all that said, so long and goodbye.